Well, it's good to be with you. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors on staff. Um, and we uh, typically, if you're new with us, what we do is we go through books of the Bible verse by verse. So that's what we're doing today. We're going to continue on in the book of Ruth. We're in chapter two this morning. And the book of Ruth is this, we've said it since we've started, is this incredibly well-written and beautiful short story. And it has everything that you would need for a perfect short story. It has tragedy and loss. It has all this just depravity within this, but it also has God's providence. It has his provision. It has his redemption all throughout it. It's a story of faith, even in the midst of hopelessness, including what we're going to read today in chapter 2. But before we get into that, what I want to do is I want to speak more directly to Providence North, to the church body that's here today. Uh, One of the greatest joys that I have uh, as a minister of the gospel for the body of Providence North Community Church Um, is being just that, is being a pastor. Um, It's a true blessing that I have in this life, and I don't take it for granted. Um, I have the pleasure and honor of getting the front row seat of so many exciting things that are happening in this church body. Uh, Whether it's been celebrating marriages or children being born, which is a lot, seems like weekly, um, celebrating uh, exciting accomplishments at work or at the home, um, even celebrating new life, my favorite thing, new life in Christ. We got to do that a few weeks ago through baptism. We've seen so many people come to faith here at Providence North, and it's one of the greatest things that I get to be a part of. Um, These moments that God's provided over the years are what my heart longs for, and it's what we should long for here as a body as well. These are the things that make me wake up in the morning and excited to get going throughout the day. Uh, But we'd be kidding ourselves if we didn't admit that there were also some dark and tough and troubling times that happen even in the midst of all those exciting things. And sometimes it feels like when one person is celebrating over here, another person is mourning over here. And as of late, it seems like there's a lot of people at Providence North that are walking through some difficult and dark valleys in their lives. And I want you to know one thing this morning is you're not alone. No matter what the enemy tells you, if you're in that place right now, you are not alone. You have a church that loves you. You have pastors that love you and want to care for you. And so if that's you this morning, perhaps it is you, and you are in the midst of that dark valley. Um, Sometimes you feel like you've lost all hope and you possibly can't see how God is going to work this out for your good or for his glory. Um, I need you to realize that, again, you're not alone. We're here for you. I want you to know that you haven't lost, that there is still hope for you. And that's why we read that statement this morning. My prayer is that for all of us this morning, I want us to walk away understanding a few things in the midst of this. First, for those of you who are not, if you are not in, a tr- in the midst of a trial this morning, I want you to look to the right or the left of you. Because more than likely, someone on either side of you is struggling this morning. Someone is lonely and someone is wondering if God actually cares. And here's what I want you to remember that you didn't come here this morning for the superb coffee or a donut wall, right? We just don't do that here. We got good coffee. It's Dunkin' Donuts, but you didn't come here for the great coffee. You came here to lift one another up. You came here to lift one another up with song and praise and worship so that you could remind those that who are in trials how good and gracious our God is. You came here this morning to wrap your arms around someone and assure them that God has them. You came here this morning to love those who are in need of love. You see, church, we need to be aware of those that are around us. 
So please don't be the person that just walks in and walks out neglecting to get to know others on a deeper level other than just the hellos and the goodbyes. Don't be the person who just wants to come in on a Sunday morning for that little nugget of information about God and do nothing with it. We were meant for so much more than that. And so whether you've been here since the living room or just for the last couple of weeks, my prayer is that you see God's providence in your life and his purpose for bringing you here, why you are here today. You're not here by accident. It's not just sheer luck that brought you here. No, God guided you here. He brought you here for a reason. Now it's time to do something about it. So get to know others, all right? Take someone out to lunch, take them to coffee, invite them into your home, but just do something. You see, God's provided so much grace and love for you in this life. He's given you more than you could ever think or imagine, and he does this for a reason, so that you can share that same grace with others. So we just have to get outside of our comfort zones a little bit, we have to get outside of our little boxes in order to do so. So those are for those, that's for those that aren't in the midst of a trial. God's brought you here for a reason, and that's to love others. Those of you that are in a trial this morning, maybe you're experiencing that dark valley, then here's what I hope you walk out with out of the doors understanding today. One, again, you're not alone. No matter what the enemy tells you, there are people that love you and care for you, and they want to walk through whatever it is that you have going on in this life. And finally, I want you to know that your relationship and your standing with God has nothing to do with what you bring to the table this morning. It's not about where you come from or what you have or haven't done for him. It's not about your ability to pull yourself up by the bootstraps and just keep on going during this season of life. It's not about your brilliance or your capacity to love others. No, God desires one thing from us, from all of us, and that's faith. He desires for us to run to the throne of grace and take refuge in him and in him alone. And so whether you're celebrating this morning or grieving, whether you're excited or sad, God desires for you to take refuge under his wings and have faith that he will provide. He wants you to take refuge in him. And that's what we're going to see in the book of Ruth today. We're going to see what used to be this lost and hopeless pagan worshiper, widowed and in a foreign land who's at the bottom of the barrel in life. But we're going to see her place her faith and take refuge in God. And then we're going to see how God responds in the midst of that. But before we do that, I would just want to pray for us for a few minutes, just for a couple seconds. Let's do that. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father God, again, I thank you for this church. I thank you for this group of people that you've brought here, Father. Out of, out of your sovereignty and out of your grace, you've gathered us as the, as the body of Providence North Community Church, and I thank you for all that are in this room today. So God, I, I just ask that we would have hearts that would desire to listen to you, that would be guided by you, that would be open to you. I pray that we would be a group of people that would go outside of our comfort zone to love and care for others. And God, for those of us that are struggling this morning, I pray that we would be humble enough to submit ourselves to you and to allow others to help us. That we would allow to be vulnerable and open with one another so that others can step into our lives and help us where you've gifted them to do so. And so God, would you be with us this morning? We love you. It's your son's name we pray. Amen. Now, as we continue this morning in chapter 2, if you've missed the last couple of weeks, 
I encourage you to actually go back and listen. We usually recap a little bit, but we've got a lot to cover today. So the entire story is worth hearing. But since we've only got so much time today, we're going to jump right in. So we're going to be in Ruth chapter 2, starting in verse 1. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open those up. Otherwise, the verses will be on the screen behind me. Ruth chapter 2, verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Right away in this first verse, we're going to see some very important things, all right? But truly to understand how important and the impact of this first verse, I want you to remember Naomi's sense of hopelessness in chapter 1. All right, remember, Naomi could see no way of being able to fix the situation that her and her daughters were in. She couldn't fix it herself, right? She told her daughters that there was absolutely no hope for them if they were to come with her because she can't provide sons for them to marry. She's too old. Basically, she's telling them, hey, if you come with me, the only thing that I can promise you is poverty and struggle. But right here in the beginning of chapter 2, things are starting to look up. We're introduced to someone new, and we're introduced to Boaz, and his name means mighty warrior or swift strength. So this is a strong dude. That this, is a, this is a mighty guy that we've um, been introduced to right away. And what we also learn is Boaz is a worthy man, so worthy that they actually make a point to mention it. So this dude, he's a rich dude, right? Right away we learn that. Boaz is essentially a wealthy man that can provide food and resources and protection if needed. But the most important thing, the most important detail that we get out of this first verse, and this is for Naomi and Ruth's sake, is at the very beginning where it says that Boaz is a relative of their deceased husbands. You see, Boaz is the hope that Naomi has been longing for, but has completely, Naomi has completely discounted this because she can't see any possible solutions or options outside of her own efforts. And so for those that are reading this story for the first time, Boaz is like this bright sliver of sunshine in the dark cloud of bitterness that's hanging over Naomi. Naomi, at the end of chapter 1, says, don't call me Naomi anymore, which means sweet. Call me Mara, which is bitter. So she has this cloud of bitterness that's hanging over her, and Boaz is starting to crack open that cloud of bitterness. And we're going to see that continue over and over as the story goes on. You see, what the story is telling us right now is that when it looks like there's no hope, we need to stop and think again. We need to guard our hearts from becoming hardened by bitterness because we can't come up with any solutions on our own, in our own infinite minds. Because what we're, finite minds, because what we're seeing here is that our infinite God can bring hope to a hopeless situation in a million different ways. The hard part is that his slivers of hope oftentimes look very different than our own solutions, don't they? And so moving on to verse 2, it says this, And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Hey, let me go to the field. Let me glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter, go. Again, what we're seeing here with Naomi, what's being displayed in this exchange is this sense of hopelessness. She's so stricken and overwhelmed with fear and anxiety that she can't even care for herself by going and getting grain or food. So she responds to Ruth, who keep in mind, Ruth is a foreign widowed woman in the land of Israel. Naomi tells her daughter, Ruth, to go. Look, I can't do it anymore. Just go, so you go. But what I believe is more important than that is that we're picking up on the type of woman that Ruth is. 
Ruth has committed herself to Naomi with this amazing devotion, and it's Ruth that takes the initiative to go and work and provide for the two of them. And so she gets up and she goes gleaning. Now, gleaning, what is that? Gleaning is basically Old Testament version of welfare. That's what it is. God, when he brought the Israelites to the promised land, he settled them there. And here's what he told them. He said, this land that I'm settling you in, it's not your land. It's my land. All right? I'm just letting you live on it for a while. I'm going to let you use the land. I'm going to let you steward this land. And I want you to do this, and I want you to use this land to take care of those that are in need. The poor, the widows, the orphans, the immigrants. You're going to use this land to take care of them. And here's how. When you plant some crops in your land, and when it comes time to harvest... I want you to leave the edges and the corners for those that can come along and harvest after you. All right? So that's what gleaning is. You would, they would plant this field. They would basically harvest the middle of this field and leave the edges for those that are in need to come after and harvest afterwards. It's a brilliant system. I love this system, and here's why. It's a way for you to care for those in need without just giving handouts. You're not harvesting the wheat yourself and just giving it away, but rather you're leaving some behind so that they can harvest it themselves. You're allowing them to be productive. You're giving them a hand up rather than a hand out. And it's a pretty cool system. Now, as cool as this system is, we can't forget the fact that there are those who need this. There are those who are in such dire and dark situations that they have no means to provide for themselves. They are dependent on others to do so. And I doubt, I really doubt that this is where Ruth imagined finding herself when she married Naomi's son so many years before. Ruth is literally at the lowest point in her life. She's begging for food on the edges of these fields, but she'll do whatever it takes to survive. And so in verse 3, it says this, So she, Ruth, set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was the clan of Elimelech. Now, I want you to notice something in that third verse there. there. I think I find it interesting. First, underline she happened. If you have your journals, or I want you to underline that portion right there. She happened to come to the part of the field. I find it interesting here because I think what the author is trying to tell us is something much greater than what we would naturally think when we read this text. You see, the text says that she just happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. Right? Some might interpret this that out of sheer luck, she stumbled onto this field and found her way to Boaz. Out of luck. Now, what's interesting about this is that nowhere else in the Bible does it say anything such as luck. Nowhere. Proverbs 16.9 says this. The heart of a man plans his way. Ruth planned her way. She knew where she was going. But the Lord establishes his steps. It was God's providence that brought her to this field. I believe the author's true intent, again, is actually the opposite of what we might naturally think. Where one might say it's chance or luck, the author is saying, no, it's God's providence. God ordained this. It's the merciful providence of God guiding Ruth as she gleans. Ruth happened to come to Boaz's field because God is gracious and sovereign even when he is silent. God is gracious in your life. He's sovereign in your life, even when he's silent. So even when it feels like life has you up against the ropes, you're beat up and for some reason you feel like you can't catch your breath to get back in the ring, even when the waves of the storm rise higher and higher and you feel helpless as the tide moves and it's coming in from every different direction, 
even when your cries for strength and endurance and help and rescue seem to go unheard. When God seems far off and your prayers appear to go unanswered, this text is showing us that God is still there. God is still gracious. God is still merciful. God is still sovereign in every moment of your life, even when he's silent. See, the author wants us to understand that it was the providence of God that led Ruth to the field and to Boaz. And as I mentioned, this text is a reminder for us that God's providence is why you are here today. It's why you're in this room today. He has you here for a reason. So whether you're in a time of need or you're in a season to be able to help others, God's providence is what led you to this church this morning. Verse 4 says this, And behold, behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, the same city that Naomi came from. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. We already have a pretty good understanding of who Boaz is, right? And from that first verse, we learn some pretty cool things. We learn that he's a relative of Elimelech, Naomi's deceased husband. We know that he's wealthy. We know that his name means mighty warrior or swift strength. And now we learn something extremely important in this verse. It says, we learn that Boaz really, really, really loves the Lord. And he loves other people. Boaz loves the Lord and he loves others. And he demonstrates this by how he greets his staff. He walks into the field and he says this, the Lord be with you. Yahweh be with you. Now, this might not seem like a big deal. You might think, well, this is just how they greet one another. But this is a big deal. You wouldn't even see this in today's world. I can't imagine walking into a boardroom and the CEO walks in and says, the Lord be with you. It just wouldn't happen. But this is an even bigger deal in this time during which this story is taking place. Remember, this is during the time of Judges, where in the last verse of the book of Judges, it says, they were living in the kingdom with no king. Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. There was no faith in the Lord. Many men were not practicing or making decisions based on what the Lord was leading them to do. They were making decisions in their own eyes. But, we, but here, we have a wealthy man who owns land, who has servants, who has maids, who has workers in his fields, and he walks up to them and he greets them this like, like this, the Lord be with you, Yahweh be with you. And again, this is a big deal because this isn't common practice during those times. It's not a common greeting that you just throw around. Boaz, when he says Yahweh, is using the most sacred covenant of names when it comes to God. Quite frankly, he could be arrested for using the Lord's name in vain if he was just throwing it around. So this is meant to be a serious blessing. And it's also showing us that Boaz has two of the most important qualities that a human can have in the eyes of God. He loves the Lord and he loves others. And his employee's response shows that they love Boaz as well. They respond with, the Lord bless you. This is showing us that there's no labor management issues here, right? There's no labor tension. Boaz has treated his workers with kindness and consideration and generosity, and they love him. There's not a lot of bosses in this world like Boaz. And what we see is that this guy's faith, Boaz's faith, affects everything in his life. Everything, including how he treats others around him and Ruth. We see that here in verse 5. It says, Then Boaz said to the young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? So 
Just as Boaz is finished greeting his people, out of the corner of his eye, Boaz is caught off guard by someone. He sees this woman working in the field. Now, again, he shouldn't be surprised by this because, again, this is part of the system. This is the gleaning system that was set up. He shouldn't be surprised that there's this woman working in the fields. But there's something about Ruth that catches, his, that catches him, and he notices her, and he inquires about her. So let me ask you this. What do you think Ruth looks like at this moment in time? What do you think, when she's gleaning the field, what do you think she looks like? What do you imagine she looks like? Now, I've, I've, I've told you before that I'm a big fan of rom-coms, right? I love me some romance movies. So I'm going to tell you what I imagine this scene to look like. Boaz, this mighty and strong warrior, walks into this huge field. Boaz, played by Matthew McConaughey, by the way, rolls into this huge field of rolling hills, and he greets his people. And in response, these people begin throwing flowers at him. They're lauding praise onto him because he's so loved. Then he sees this incredibly gorgeous woman, played by my wife, and he's, she's not here to even hear that. So this incredibly gorgeous woman who's hearing this, and, or who's seeing this, and she's in this beautiful dress, right? And she's working this field like it's nothing. There's no sweat. There's no dirt. I mean, she just barely, I mean, she's pulling grain. Like, I don't even know what gleaning looks like, but she's pulling grain. She's not sweating. Her makeup is perfect. Her dress is amazing. The wind is flowing through her hair. There's romantic music playing in the background. That's the scene that I imagine because I love romance movies so much. But that's probably not the case here, is it? Now, my guess is Ruth resembles nothing like what we just described or how Hollywood might portray her. My guess is she's quite dirty. She's quite sweaty. She's probably pretty smelly, and her dress is tattered and torn. She's not showing it, but she's exhausted, she's tired, and she's scared. She probably looks like what we would imagine a homeless woman looking like, because essentially she is homeless. And yet, because we already know the type of man that Boaz is when it comes to others, the text shows us that he's paying attention to her. He notices her. He doesn't judge her by her outward appearance or what state she's in. He wants to know her. He wants to know what's going on with her. And I think this is how Jesus loves us too. Not only is this how he loves us, but this is how he calls us to love others, to get past that outward appearance. But all too often in our culture today, I think a lot of times we romanticize what loving and serving Jesus might look like. We forget that it requires us to put aside our prejudices and our judgments. We forget that it's going to cost us something. It's going to cost us something to look past appearance and cultural differences and often to get outside of our comfort zones, like driving to rough parts of Houston to serve refugees or waiting at a bus station to welcome released convicts, determining whether or not to bring in drug-exposed and traumatized children into your family, praying for those that have received heartbreaking diagnoses or lost loved ones or being persecuted and killed across the world for their faith, even pursuing forgiveness and reconciliation with someone who's hurt you or walking alongside someone who's deeply struggling and hurting. This is the kind of love that Boaz is showing here. He's looking past the outward appearance and he's going to do something that's going to cost him something. This is the kind of love that's messy. It's difficult. It's uncomfortable, but it's real. And what we see is Boaz demonstrating it here, and he goes even further to provide for Ruth. So again, Boaz doesn't judge Ruth by her outward appearance or her social standing. He wants to know her, 
And so he asks about her, and he quickly learns who Ruth is. Verse 6 and 7 says this, And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, let me, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Now we've learned a lot about Boaz and some really cool things about him, but now Boaz is going to learn a lot about Naomi real fast. First thing, we've already discussed this. Ruth is caring and supportive of those that God has placed in her life. She loves others, including her mother-in-law, Naomi. Boaz also learns that she's polite and respectful. She has a sense of humility about her. Why? The text says that she asked for permission to glean from the fields. Now, remember, she didn't have to do this. This was, again, the part of the system that was set in place. So we know that she's not demanding a handout in any way, and she even goes as far to say that I will just take the leftovers after the reapers. So she's not presuming anything of the owner of this field, but rather displaying humility. And lastly, Boaz learns that she's a hard worker. The text says that she worked from early morning, and what we see later in the text is until the evening. So she works from morning till night with nothing more than a short rest. You see, Boaz learns that Ruth is caring, she's supportive, she's humble, and she's hardworking, and she expects nothing. And after learning all this, Boaz responds in what should seem like the most astonishing and unexpected ways. Boaz comes sweeping into Ruth's side, and he provides, he's going to provide for her five amazing things. And this, I want you to take notes on this. This is really incredible what he provides, starting in verse 8. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that you're reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. This is an astonishing response because, again, what we have to keep in mind is the context and culture of when this is taking place. Boaz sees Ruth, a Moabite widow with nothing to offer, but he hears what she has done and he decides, you know what, I'm going to protect and provide for her in ways that she would never have imagined. First, Boaz says, look, don't go to another field. Do not leave this one. Rather than moving from field to field and losing valuable time and wasting energy, just stay here and use this field. Boaz is providing resources and food so that it's easier for Ruth and Naomi to survive. He's meeting her needs. Then he says this, stay with my servant girls. Keep close to them, he says. He's providing friends and community. Next, he tells Ruth also, these women who I want you to follow along with, I want you to watch the field. I want you to watch how they glean. Learn from them. Be trained by them. He's providing instruction and training and discipleship. But then he tells Ruth something interesting. He says, be assured, none of my men will touch you. Now, what I'm thinking happened here is most likely Ruth has experienced some sort of sexual harassment or assault. And when learning of this, Boaz stops it dead in his tracks. He says, none of my men will ever touch you. Boaz is providing protection and dignity for Ruth. And lastly, Boaz tells Ruth to drink from the water that the young men have drawn. Now, this is big. During these days, women were the ones that typically drew water from the wells for themselves. And Boaz is saying, no, you can drink from the water or from the vessels that the young men have drawn. 
Boaz is providing honor and respect to Ruth. I love this. This is the church. This is what you should find when you walk into the church. This is the body of Christ in action. This is my prayer that every person would walk through the doors of Providence North and experience this. They would experience community, friendship, resources and needs being met, discipleship and training, protection, dignity, honor, respect, love. This is beautiful. And this is exactly what Boaz is providing for Ruth. And I love how she responds. She responds in complete humility. Verse 10, she says, Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes? Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am just a foreigner? Ruth is completely stunned. She's telling Boaz, look, I don't deserve all this. I don't deserve this. I'm a foreigner. I'm from a tribe that is opposed to you. I'm from a tribe that God told you not to associate with. I've got nothing to offer for you. I've got nothing to repay you. So why are you doing this for me? Why are you providing so much? And I think here's where we get into a fairly significant theological metaphor. This is an incredibly beautiful story. But I believe God wants us to see much deeper than that. He wants us to see the spiritual implications of this story in our own lives. Look at Ruth's response here. It's incredible. Complete humility. Why would you ever do that for me? Why, God? You see, typically for us, I believe that oftentimes we think that we deserve respect and kindness at all times with all people, including God don't we? We think that God owes us. And so when we live a life with that mentality and when we place those expectations on other people or God, we tend to be disappointed quite often. But when we know, like Ruth, that we don't deserve anything good in life, when we recognize our depravity, our self-sin nature, that we really understand that we don't deserve anything at all, then we tend to be pleasantly surprised in life. We tend to be more grateful for all the good things that come our way And we see this attitude being displayed by Ruth's question to Boaz when she asks, why? Why would you do this for me? And so Boaz answers. He lets her know that he's been watching her. He's been studying her. Not like stalking her, studying her, but he's been doing his homework. He's asked around about her. He's inquisitive. He wants to know who's the one that's gleaning in his field. And so verse 11, he says this. Boaz answered her. All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and your mother in your native land and you came to the people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. This is the part that I love about Boaz's response the most. Boaz says, you want to know why I'm doing this? You want to know why I'm providing all this for you? First of all, it's not me. He takes no credit for this. It's not me. It's the Lord that's providing for you. The Lord repay you. I'm not doing this because of something you've done for me or can do for me. It's the Lord that's doing this. And the reason he's doing all this is because you've taken refuge. You've drawn near to him. He's your refuge. 
And that's what we desire for all of us at Providence North. All of you that call Providence North your church home, we want to be a group of people who don't take refuge. We do not take refuge in our abilities or in our brilliance or in our strength. We want to be a church that takes refuge in the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. And we do that. We go to that refuge. We seek that refuge so that we can go back out into the world equipped and refreshed and strengthened by Jesus Christ so that we can tell others about them, so that they too can take refuge in him. And that's what Boaz is doing with Ruth. And so when we look at this story from a 30,000-foot view, it's pretty easy for us to see God's hand moving throughout it, isn't it? When we look from the top down and we see everything that's happening, it's easy for us to see God's hand. We can see the intricacies of his every move. We can see God using Boaz here to bring incredible blessing on the Ruth. And as I said before, this is pretty much unheard of in this culture. Nobody does this for a foreign, homeless, widowed woman in this culture, especially one from Moab. It just doesn't happen. But when you seek refuge under God's wings, we see that God provides what you need and when you need it. And that's what he wants to show us through this entire epic story. So let me ask you this question. Why do you think he allowed the famine? The famine in the very beginning of the story. This great famine that led to, Ruth, or led to Naomi and Elimelech and their two sons to leave. Why do you think he allowed Naomi's husband to drag her to Moab? Why did he allow Naomi's husband to die? Why did he allow her two sons to die? Why did he allow Naomi and Ruth to become homeless and helpless, begging for food on the edges of random fields? Why did God allow all this? The story he's, we're seeing, he does this, he allows this because he wants us to see how much he actually provides and how well he provides. You see, if life were easy... Why would we ever have to go to God for anything? How would we ever know how much we need God? If relationships were easy, if marriage was easy, why would we ever have to go to God for his word, for his instruction, or for his wisdom? If your job was easy, if your children were easy, what would you need God for? What would you need to pray about? You see, the truth is life is hard. Work is hard, relationships are hard, and kids are hard. And the reason for that is to make us run straight to Jesus. Every chance we get to run right to him. Hebrews 4.16 says this, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Draw with, draw with, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This text is telling us that we don't hesitate. We don't walk. We run. We run straight to Jesus for his grace. And remember, grace is something that you cannot do anything to earn, and we don't deserve it either. Grace is something that is given to us. And so the only thing we can do when in, when in need of God's help is to take refuge. We take refuge under his wings rather than trying to fly on our own. That's all we can do, and that's all that God wants. You see, when Ruth came to Boaz, she had nothing in her hands. 
She had nothing to provide, to use, or to repay him. And so for us, we need to be reminded that when we come to God and you take refuge, that you come to him with the understanding that you have empty hands. There's nothing that you can do to repay him or earn that grace. And you also come to him ready to receive. We have to be ready to receive from him. We have to humbly submit ourselves to the fact that God will provide, and he provides everything that we need in his time, all because of one reason, and that's Jesus. He does that because of Jesus. And so when we look at Boaz, we actually see a picture of Jesus, just a picture, just a glimpse. He was rich, and he sacrificed some of his wealth to provide for a poor person like Ruth. Jesus was rich, and he gave up his glory and his honor and his position in order to come and grow up in a poor family and later die on a cross for you. Jesus gave up his riches to provide for poor people like us. And if that doesn't amaze you, then it should. That should amaze you. It should make you fall on your face and ask, why? Why? We should be asking the same question every day that Ruth asks. How is it, Lord, that I have found favor in your eyes? How is that even possible? I don't deserve this. I'm a foreigner. I come from a tribe that was opposed to you, Jesus. How is it that you have shown me this incredible kindness? And Jesus responds, because you've taken refuge in me. Boaz is a picture of Jesus. There's no doubt about that. But Boaz is also the picture of the kind of man and human that we should want to be because of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word and the truth that we find in that God. It's amazing how your word can speak so deeply into our lives at different points and at different seasons, and I just thank you for that. Thank you for how your word has ministered to me this week. And I'm grateful for this church, Father. Father, I pray that your spirit would be among those in this church, that they would seek you, that they would seek to take refuge in you, that they would feel your love, that your arms would wrap around them, that they would feel your presence, that they would understand that even when you are silent, God, you're still there, you're still providing, you're still guiding, you're still sovereign. There's nothing about you that's changed. So God, would we remember that? we remember that in the good times and in the bad times. We love you, Father. It's your son's name we pray. Amen. Church, let's stand and continue to worship.